real hard. <laughs> States below. We are in the great state of New Hampshire, and you are back with us for another glorious episode of Jackman Radio. So happy to be here with you, Eric Jackman, bringing it to you. Mike Jackman, bringing it to you. And that was Father John Misty off of his 2012 debut, Fear Fun. Love that song, man. That song is called Nancy from now on, and I actually just saw that song live uh, within the last two weeks down in Washington, D.C. at the 930 Club, which is an awesome venue down there. Uh, special thanks to my friend and brother, Chris Potter, who uh, took me to that show. And tonight's episode is a little bit Washington, D.C.-centric. We have an interview coming up in a little bit with Tyrell Ventura, which I conducted down in Washington, D.C. when I went down there to visit uh, a couple of best friends and my sister, Laura. So that Word. was a cool trip. We'll talk more about that. But And, of course, joining us is Aaron. How you doing, Aaron? Good. Thank you for having me, as, as always. It's always a pleasure, man. Yeah. Us having you? How about you having us? I couldn't do this thing without you. Raising the funds. There's no I in team. Traveling to Latin America, you know? I don't even know what that fucking Chris, means. Crisscrossing the globe. Basically, yeah. Because of Aaron LaFond. Yeah. It's a good guy. LaFonda. <laughs> LaFonda. Strange times. Uh, presidential primaries cooking. I mean, we have, I like to do a little check-ins uh, with each show. Senator Rand Paul announced yesterday he is running for president all in. The freshman senator from Kentucky is running for the Republican nomination for president in a very, very, well, not officially, but it's a very, very crowded field. The Republican side will be very crowded anyways. And, uh, you know, man... I don't know. I don't really... I'm not sold on Rand Paul. You know, I was all in for Ron Paul in 2012. I worked on his campaign out of the office up in Concord. Hit the phones, hit doors, uh, issued press credentials for people at events. You know, it was it was great. I loved working for him. There's plenty of money. You believed plenty in Plenty of support. I actually believed in it. Uh, he was a, Ron is a great man of principle. I don't agree with everything that he stands for, but you know what he stands for, and it doesn't change week to week. Rand, man, I can't say the same about. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I uh, as I've said to people, you know, who are asking if I'm going to vote for Rand Paul or work for him or support him, he's a little slippery. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think deep down he's a good guy, and when he certainly came into prominence, and I believe it was the 2010 election, you know, right. the midterm elections with the Tea Party um, wave that got him in there. Um, I, I thought he had a lot. Party. He had well. I do fucking too. hate the Tea Party. It's a manufactured right wing bullshit Republican Gold yeah. Brothers sell job nonsense. But I think Rand Paul had a lot of good things to say, and I think he believed in a lot of good things and a lot of the same principles as his father. But he has become a politician. He's had to play the game. Yeah. He's going to have to play the game during the primaries if he wants to get anywhere in places like Iowa and even you know certain parts of New Hampshire. And uh, it's. Yeah, I don't know. I Lots of pandering. He's pandering to those religious nut jobs in Iowa, or religious nut jobs anywhere, who who were some of the loudest in the Republican primary. They 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 helped Santorum win the caucus, Iowa caucus, right, by a small margin in 2012. You know, people who believe Earth is five thousand years old, sure, and that you know being gay is a choice, sure. You know, those those assholes, social conservative fucking assholes. 
You know? No, they, uh, they, they're organized. You they can't are. say they're not they're organized. They're organized so. and they're loud. But they're wrong. They're well, fucking wrong. It's, you know, it's 2015, you know, enough of that bullshit. Let's fix the economy. Who cares what people are doing in their bedrooms, you know? Oh, I'm with you on that so one. So Rand, Rand is slippery, man. I'm not, I'm not convinced. Um, you know, I'll probably, if, if Jim Webb, like I've said, if Jim Webb doesn't run, I think I'm going to just go for Gary Johnson again because it looks like he's going to run for the Libertarian Party again, and uh, he actually is a Libertarian. Cool. He's not, he's not a poser. And, I mean, I will say uh, I think Rand will be uh, forced to be reckoned with. He raised a million dollars in the first 24 hours of this campaign. Today he raised about a million? In, 20, in 24 hours since announcing. What do you think about that, Aaron? He did a money bomb. Dollars. He did a money bomb. It was all online, too. The whole thing oh, was done online. Kickstarter or something like that? Well, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They call it a money bomb. So, okay. like, Twitter, everyone's tweeting pictures, stand with Rand. And they raised a million dollars. And, and he's the first, I think, the first presidential candidate to accept Bitcoin. <laughs> that makes sense. For real. That makes sense. As, you, know, uh, you know, Ron Paul tapped into something here in New Hampshire the last election cycle, coming in second place during the primary, getting, I think, 20, 21% of the vote. But I don't know if that's going to translate for Rand because a lot of libertarians and a lot of people are maybe a little bit more suspicious. Well, a lot of purists who, you know... You can't keep them happy. Right, and like a really big difference between the two is, is Rand is kind of trying to be like this hawkish. He's trying to get more more hawkish about foreign policy. And with Ron Paul was just you know up in the debates in twelve and in two thousand eight with the Republicans was just so clear about foreign policy. I don't know. We'll we'll uh, we'll keep tabs on that and uh, we'll keep an eye on it. But Rand Paul is in. Ted Cruz is in, and uh, more will be announcing soon. And Rand has been taking shots against Hillary Clinton, which is kind of interesting as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. He's already in general election mode, even though he has to win the Republican primary. Well, a political story from yesteryear, uh, something I found to be very entertaining. This is from Yahoo News, and this is in regards to uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, okay. who, of course, succeeded President John F. Kennedy. 36th President of the United States. A very interesting fellow, an interesting case study. And I'm going to read a little uh, a little blurb here from uh, Yahoo News that I saw that it was just... And this just came out? This was out, yeah, this week, within the last week. And this is from Kate Anderson Brewer, who's author of The Residence, Inside the Private World of the White House, which talks about White House staff, groundskeepers, people who worked in the kitchen. People who really know what's going on. People who actually did the nuts and bolts at the White House. Who know the weird shit that our presidents like at two in the morning when they're not getting any. Exactly. So the Yahoo News article says, And LBJ, well, he came off as a monster. He harassed resident staff for years to construct him a specialized shower to replicate the one he had at his private residence at his Washington, D.C. home with water charging out of multiple nozzles in every direction with needle-like intensity (laughs) and a hugely powerful force. Oh, nice. One nozzle was pointed directly at the president's penis. Yep, that's which where he, I was going. <laughs> which, which he nicknamed Jumbo. Another shot right up his rear, Bowers writes. Johnson, who traveled with his own special shower nozzle, which is, how fucking awesome is that? Oh, yeah, so this good. is fantastic. Come on, you want to talk about presidential privilege? Don't be yeah. president for any other reason but to have a friggin' butthole blaster, on. super soaker. And this, you know, it gets better. Psych. Okay. So he traveled with his own special shower nozzle, wanted the water pressure at the White House to be the equivalent of a, quote, fire hose. (laughs) And he wanted a simple switch to change the temperature from hot to cold immediately. Never warm. I I get this. Showers are important. Well, he wasn't going to compromise on on hot or cold. You can't. I mean, this is a big boy from Texas. What was he, 6'4"? Just yeah. as tall as Lincoln? LBJ was a big... Big boy. Not quite as tall as Lincoln, Biggest, but LBJ yeah. was a big southern boy. Bad yeah. pressure is a motherfucker. You never, you never like, any, anytime you, like, get a new apartment or you, you, you yeah. know, get a hotel and there's bad oh, fucking pressure. Dude, oh, it's the worst. Everyone's you, did, you want your money back. back. Yeah. yeah. That was the selling point for this place. Now, did they yeah. keep this shower in... Okay. Here it we, continues. We're there. <laughs> Lyndon Johnson harangued the staff when they explained to him that they would have to lay new pipe. Install multiple new pumps. Can you even lay enough pipe? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And increase the size of the water lines to the White House to create this shower contraption. And Lyndon Johnson said, If I can move 10,000 troops in a day, you can certainly fix the bathroom any way I want it. Which he barked at his staff, according to Brower, the author of this book. Reds Arrington, 
the plumber, the plumbing foreman at the White House spent five years trying to pr- perfect the project and at one point was hospitalized with a nervous breakdown. <laughs> okay, so imagine that. Like, you're like, here's your job. You're, you have a family and kids. You got a house. You got whatever. You're tasked with coming up with the fucking jet stream to go up Lyndon yeah. Johnson's gooch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That guy, that, and he, that dude, guy was that's your job. That guy was stressed. Uh, of course, out. he was stressed, oh, man. Dude, wouldn't you have heart palpitations? So, what do you do? You think like Johnson is like he, he he probably was jerking off while he felt like the pressure on his ass, right? Oh yeah, maybe there, there was probably some shit. Like there's going a, probably on. all kinds of positions, or, you, or when you're fucking in the shower, you got a girl <laughs> in there with you. She in, probably sure. Madeline Brown was that one of his mistresses? Yeah. yeah, no, it was. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine how big though that whole stall must have been? I mean, I mean I'd like to see a picture of this. Right, you'd be like a freaking like chamber. I mean, people talk about they have to travel with this type of food. They have, uh, you know, they, they can't have they, they can't have wheat. They ha- things have to be, you know, <laughs> carb and fat free. No, no, no. He has to travel with his own shower nozzle. Right. It continues. The staff went through five different replacement shower models. LBJ eventually got something like what he wanted, sort of. The water temperature was so hot that the steam it emitted regularly set off the fire alarm in the White House. Holy wow. shit. I mean, come Dude, on. How big do those towels have to be to wrap them around Lyndon Johnson's ass? You know, oh, his ass is as big as Texas. That's got to be it. That, that's a whole other that's cost another the taxpayers. You, you could maybe find a guy who was in charge of washing Lyndon Johnson's towels. I don't mind paying taxes for that, though. That's that's. I, just I to get a story that like that. It's, it's too funny. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah, could, you can't even make great. this yeah. stuff up, okay? Lyndon, you know, Lyndon Johnson had some very interesting stuff that he talked about. Now, near the end of his presidency, LBJ told Arrington, who was the plumbing foreman at the White House, that the shower was, quote, his delight. <laughs> okay, so, you That's know, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson's doing his thing. You know, he doesn't really want to run in 68. You know, he. I, I read recently that LBJ actually wanted to get a Rockefeller. Uh, I think it was a senator. It was either Nelson Rockefeller or... or the David. one who ended up being the vice president? Maybe. Under Nixon? No. Uh, was it Nixon or Gerald Ford? Maybe it was Didn't Ford. Gerald Ford have a Rockefeller as his VP? But LBJ was very tight with the Rockefellers. And this is a Republican from New York. And he wanted well, to anyone get... anyone who had money. I mean, Johnson didn't give a fuck what the Johnson wanted to get were. Rockefeller to run against Bobby Kennedy in the 1968 election. So, you know, this happens. Not long after Nixon took over the White House, after Johnson, he took one of LBJ's elaborate shower setups and he muttered, Get rid of this stuff. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. So there you go. That's, that's probably awesome. one of the most interesting presidential things I've heard in a long time. Yeah, that's a good one. So the book is called The Residence, Inside the Private World of the White House. And they talk about Hillary as first lady. Um, the various af- after, douches that she used. After the... Bill's face. After the Monica Lewinsky scandal, going to the pool with a, uh, a Secret Service guy. With black lights. Crying on an aide's shoulder in, in, in the, in the uh, elevator, which was the same elevator that Nixon... Shed a tear in after he resigned. So this is very wow. interesting stuff. So it sounds like this author got some some people who were there to go on the record. Yeah. Who oh were yeah. Firsthand witnesses. Reminds me of uh, you know flies on the wall when you watch House of Cards. All the people who were White House staff or Secret Service. I mean they hear everything. They do, and they're people. There's got to be Secret I mean, Service agents still alive who were there when Kennedy was banging everything with two legs. Of course. You know. Of course, every president. And this book covers every president since Kennedy. Wow. I'm going to check that book out. Sounds like a very interesting book. Lyndon Johnson's great. He's not great, but, you know. I mean, after he left office, he retreated to his ranch in Texas and just kind of lived out the next few years. I believe he died in 1972. Something like that. So he left office in, what, 69 or something? Yeah, yes. January of 69. He grew right? his hair long. He started smoking cigarettes again. I think he was drinking. He was getting, you know, visits from uh, various luminaries and, uh, you know, doing his thing and, and uh, died not that long after. So Interesting. Back to talking about Washington, D.C. I took a trip to Washington, D.C. recently to visit a couple of best friends and to visit my sister. And we had a blast. And fortunately, I was able to uh, meet Tyrell Ventura. Tyrell Ventura is the host of a new show on Russia Today, uh, the USA edition, called Watching the Hawks. And he hosts the show with uh, Sean Stone and Tabitha Wallace. It's a uh, very interesting show. They cover current events and news and kind of give their opinion on it and uh, various opinions on something in a real no-bullshit kind of way. And uh, I was very excited to be able to 
meet Tyrell in person. He came down to uh, my friend Chris's place and uh, agreed to be interviewed, and we chatted for about an hour. So we're going to air the uh, first half of that for this show. And for people who don't know, Tyrell Ventura is the son of Jesse Ventura. Yes, he's former governor of Minnesota, Jesse wrestler, Ven- actor, mayor, Navy SEAL, badass guy who I want to be president. And we've been talking about since episode one. Of course, obviously. and Sean Stone is the son of Oliver Stone, the world-famous and controversial film director. Right. And Tabitha Wallace is a producer and... Longtime friend of longtime Tyrell. friend and, of Tyrell. And, and Tyrell uh, recently moved down to Washington, D.C. to work for Russia Today and produce another show, and then he's got his own show going now, and... Uh, during the first half of the interview, we're going to talk about the nucleus of the show. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Mickey Rourke, oh, who you guys yeah. all know is my favorite actor, and some other nuggets. So I hope you guys enjoy. This is uh, Mike talking with Tyrell Ventura. Jackman Radio. I'm one of your co-hosts, Mike Jackman, and I'm reporting from Washington, D.C. And today we have a very special guest, the host of the current show on Russia Today called Watching the Hawks, Mr. Tyrell Ventura. Tyrell, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Mike. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Yeah, so I contacted Tyrell uh, recently uh, through a mutual friend, and uh, Tyrell was gracious enough to agree to come out and uh, speak with us today. So, um, Tyrell, you recently launched this new show on Russia Today, Watching the Hawks. Uh, yes. You yes. want to talk a little bit about how that came to be and what the background is of that and, <laughs> and uh, how that's going for you? Well, it's it's been fantastic, you know, watching the Hawks. I'll, I'll do the, the, the plug here. Uh, you know, Monday through Thursday, 6 p.m. Eastern on RT America. You can also check out the YouTube page, uh, you know, Watching the Hawks with the Facebook, uh, you know, Twitter. I recently joined Twitter. I've been trying to avoid it, but now I'm now I'm tweeting. Oh, yeah. Uh, all because <laughs> I, believe, I, I believe in this show, and I believe in what me and Tabitha Wallace and Sean Stone are doing and bringing to the airwaves. Um, how did it come about? Well, it, kind of a long story. Uh, as you know, me and Sean Stone had, had kind of met and then started working uh, on camera uh, on uh, conspiracy theory with, with uh, my father. And uh, and kind of when that did the third season, well, I produced the first three seasons, and then on the third season, uh, we brought Sean in along with myself to be on camera. So you were kind of behind the scenes for the inception of it through, through yeah, the time? Yeah, kind of. yeah, it was, uh, yeah, they had me come up and, and help produce the show to kind of be, uh, you know, help represent Jesse, you know, when, when uh, you know, he couldn't be there. You know, he lives in Minnesota, Mexico, uh, and right. the show was produced out of Los Angeles, so it's always nice to have someone to where you don't have to constantly be calling Jesse, you can kind of get... <laughs> Yeah, to get his take you on get something. His ta- I generally have a pretty good idea of like yeah. what his, you know, but he always surprises me too. But so we were working on that, and then when when conspiracy theory ended, we um, uh, were approached to, uh, you know, we were offered like, hey, do you want to come online and try doing a show, you know, like a YouTube show online channel called the Lit TV, and uh, you know, me and Sean were like, we can, you know, we were, you know, we could design and create our own show, and then you know, yeah. TV kind of acted as a platform for it. But you know, we designed the show from the ground up ourselves, and um, that kind of had its run. Uh, Sean still hosts an interview segment on it, but uh, you know, brought Tabitha in, who I've worked with on numerous projects in LA, and is uh, one of my best friends, and uh, is an awesome producer and a great voice. Yeah, and, she's an OBS kind of oh, person. Oh, I love she's, Tabitha yeah, for she, that. Yeah, she goes yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, so we started doing the news and trying to do interviews, and we did that for a year and got a really good following, which kind of you know surprised us all. We weren't expecting, you know, because online is so hard to break through on. You know, yeah. I mean, there's so much content out there that... You know, but, you know, surprisingly, we did really good, and we, we got a following pretty quickly and, and you know, really you know, built up a really great audience. And when kind of our time with the Lip TV uh, ended, uh, we, you know, it kind of overlapped a little bit, but uh, we started working, you know, we started talking with RT, uh, RT America, and, and uh, 
we, me and Tab moved out to Washington uh, in that spring after after the end of Buzzsaw, and start working as producers for RT uh, on their daily news show. Oh, okay. Cool. And uh, you know they do about four episodes, you know, four daily news broadcasts a day, and so they brought me and Tab on to help produce those and and you know write some copy, you know everything you do to help make a daily news show, which is a ton. Um, and then and really great people were there to kind of you know give show us the ropes and things like that. And as that was developing, I mean, they didn't bring us out there just for that. They brought us out there to, to do a show. You know, they really yeah. liked what we were doing on, on Buzzsaw and said, you know, we want you to do a show. But we also need this time. You know, you should have some time in before we just suddenly launch a show. So we have time to develop it, create it, and figure out what it's going to be. the studio. Exactly. You know, get to know the, the terrain, you know. Um, and so we, we spent a year doing that. I guest hosted a few episodes of Breaking the Set for Abby Martin. Oh, nice. Uh, when she was out of town or things like that. And... Um, uh, and then me and Tabitha developed a great segment for the news called Press the Media, where me and her would kind of dissect the foibles and follies and, 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 and lies of the, of the mainstream media, and we would have that on once a week. And all that kind of was the slow building process to develop watching the Hawks. And, uh, and then now, you know, just a few weeks ago, we, we launched, you know, we were actually last week, we launched on March yeah. 23rd, we were four episodes in, uh, I don't know when this will air, or this will hit, but, <laughs> you know, as of right now, we just finished our first week and we are very excited, we're very, very happy and very proud with, with what we're doing and it's only going to go, it's only going to get better. Um, the great thing about working for RT America is, is you have ex I mean, almost extraordinary editorial control. You know, uh, yeah. it, 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 you know, it's, it's a collaborative process. It's not, you know, it's fantastic. You know, we can tackle any stories that logos question more, which is exactly what I was raised to do. You know, oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. coming from, yeah. it really feels yeah. like a perfect fit, you know, in terms of being able to have a show, get the ideas out there, be able to talk about subjects that uh, mainstream media doesn't want to touch. That is very important. I think to people to hear and learn about so they can, you know, inform themselves. And, and become better citizens that way, because that's what you have to do to be a good citizen. And so, you know, it, it's been a it's been a wild ride, but it, it's it's fantastic doing this show and being able to, to to have a platform to really speak out and really get some good 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 discussion out there into the into the into the uh, into the you know sphere of humanity. I don't know, maybe that's a little too extreme. <laughs> no, no, that's great. That's, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> that's why I'm doing this podcast. You know, I'm a former man. I'm a former screenwriter, so now and then I'll have some pretty like you know wild out phrasing. I, I some good so yeah, yeah, some good fifty. I try to use the fifty cent words as much as I can. But oh, that's great. But um, yeah. yeah, that's that's kind of the the thing with watching Knox, man. It's a it's a great show, and 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 the the fun of doing it is. You know, Tabitha and Sean and myself, we each have these great different viewpoints on things, you know, and, and we can have, you know, challenging viewpoints on a show and, and we can show that, which is a rarity on cable news, that you can actually have discussions without people suddenly turning it into name calling and yelling. Or yelling at each other. Yeah, yeah which we want to avoid. Even if we have a guest on who we disagree with on something, I don't want to get into, I would rather challenge them. And have them challenge me back. Yeah, with the facts. Exactly. Yeah. Then, then get into like the Bill O'Reilly scream fest. As much as it's entertaining to watch people yell at yeah. each other, <laughs> I don't find it at all interesting. You know, at the end of the day, and I don't think many people do either. And I think there's a big void right now. Uh, I think a lot of people are turning away from from cable news and mainstream cable news because they're not talking about the issues that are truly important. I mean, they'll spend hours and hours and hours talking about a tragic plane crash in France. But at the end of the day, what does what impact does that have on the world? Right, or in you know, this or in, or in the U.S. specifically, yeah. that has right. no impact. What's happening in the Middle East with Yemen and Saudi Arabia and Iraq that has a bigger impact because we're directly involved there. What right. happens here stateside has a bigger impact than whether or not a plane crashed. It's tragic, and of course you report it, but you don't need to spend eight. 10 hours a day on yeah, it. Yeah, a whole cycle dwelling on yeah, it. Yeah, Basically distracting yeah. people yeah. by using things like, stories like that as well as uh, celebrity sex scandals exactly, or the latest... Exactly. Uh, you know, let's talk some tabloid journalism. And, and you know, there's always you can always find even in the most tabloid of stories, you can always find something interesting. You know, and, oh, yeah, and, and you know, there's something there, but, but you don't need to spend, you know, 10 hours of your news day on that. 
and, and it's not and, really news it's no. entertainment no so what we're trying to do with watching the hawks is is bring that back you know we're an opinion analysis show we want to inform people we want to get get the get the conversation out there that i think people are having in their own homes around their bar stools you know in at the office you know get those conversations and try to get some topics and some subjects and some people and personalities that you're never you know that you're not going to see on mainstream media and give them a platform to talk because there's a lot of really important stories out there and a lot of really important people that uh, are being shut out in that kind of corporate you know, media environment that we live under. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, with Russia today, obviously, there's a lot of controversy out there. Um, the MSN always, uh, MSM always will chastise anyone associated with Russia today. And I know Abby Martin caught a lot of flack for this, but mm-hmm. it seems like you guys really do have autonomy and you, of course. Can, you can speak to whatever you want to. And there's, yeah. you guys aren't getting uh, red it's, memos from the Kremlin uh, dictating no, no. what you can the, say and not that, say. That and and so... you guys are, are more accurate than than the quote-unquote mainstream media. Yeah, we, we, and, we've, I can officially say that I've never received any uh, phone call uh, from the Kremlin, you know, from, from Putin. Putin. I've never, I've never, <laughs> I've never felt an editorial hand there that wasn't the normal editorial hand you'd find in any newsroom, in any newspaper, or television. Yeah. It's normal news. Of course, when you're going through the news, you have to pick what stories are, you know, you feel are the best. But yeah. I've never ever felt like you can only report this, or you can't report that. I've never had right. that. Or you have I've to always have that. a slant against the U.S. I've the West never or, had that. Right. Never, yeah. never, never. That is not. That's. Yeah, I, I didn't think I, so. I wouldn't think so. I, you know, I haven't. I haven't seen that. I've never felt that. I think it's 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 a very good, honest uh, journalism. I mean, look, every every channel, you know, in news has their. They all have like you know, they all have a certain perspective of news, but I don't think that yeah. you know, they, I've never felt uh, anything you know bad in their perspective. You know, I've never, I've never felt like you know that they they're trying to push an agenda. Right. I've never seen that. Wasn't like, it was wasn't like when um, when your father was working, I think for MSNBC, they basically yeah. paid him, but told him he couldn't go on the air with his opinions. Is that? Well, what happened? Well, what in a way, what happened with that that was really interesting. I was actually helping produce that show. Um, what 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 got what made that show uh, a pain to, to get made was the fact that most major U.S. news organizations and corporate news organizations they kind of get the five to seven stories that they're going to cover at the top of the day, and then you can only cover those five to seven stories. So one of the great things about RT is you don't get that memo. There's never a memo saying we're only covering these stories. Uh, you know. You, you, when you get into, uh, you know, uh, like MSNBC, you get a list of like, you know, here's the stories we're covering. From what I remember, I, I remember that kind of being the, the deal there. Um, you know, you kind of get this weird, like you have to talk at the time. It was the big news was Kobe Bryant's rape case. Mm-hmm. Remember in Colorado mm-hmm. years back? Oh yeah. Well, when you're Jesse Ventura, he doesn't want to talk about Kobe oh, Bryant's he rape. Have to talk about yeah, it. because yeah. to him, again, like we were saying earlier, there, there's nothing about that that really has any effect on the American people whatsoever beyond the salacious celebrity doing something scandalous. Yeah. And so he wouldn't want to talk about that. And that was very hard on them. And then the other thing was also that he, that was during the lead up to the invasion of Iraq, and he was very against that. So 2002, 2003? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and wow. he was very against that. And at the time, they had just let Donahue go, who was actually their most highest ranked, you know, highest rated uh, show on the network at the time you because he was against. Voices. He, yeah, they yeah. didn't want that. Because at the time, MSNBC was kind of jockeying to be like Fox Light. Mm. You know, I think, and then they are all like, "Ooh, well, Fox is making a fortune playing to the Republicans, so we all need to jump on the bandwagon and try to do the same thing." And Jesse isn't a Republican, nor is he a Democrat. He has his own voice, and I think that's kind of what you saw. But uh, well, yeah, that's exactly what you saw right there. You know, and that's what you get when you get into that corporate, you know, news like that. It's when you get outside of corporate-run news, whether it's you know. Uh, NPR or uh, Al Jazeera or BBC right. or, or RT, you have that fresher take on things. Yes, of course, like, you know, this is RT America, so that deals directly with, you know, kind of continent America. You know, uh, you know RT Moscow, you know, RT, they'll have their thing because they're playing to the Russian audience. You know, right. like they'll have, you know, every BBC has the London perspective, you know, like they all have their different perspectives. They got some good stuff. But they're great stuff. Yeah, they, that, they, that's what I mean. Like, you know, where, and that's what you kind of, but here in the US, it's so bizarre because it's like, they all follow the rules of the State Department, but at the same time, they'll put their little, like, kind of political spin on it. 
Yeah. You know, like they'll never kind of, they'll question motives of politicians and they'll challenge things if it falls into a left-right kind of paradigm. But ultimately, they're still just kind of marching out with the marching orders that comes out of the State Department and the powers that be. Because ultimately, as we've seen over the last so many years, it doesn't matter what party's in charge. The kind of underlying gears of where the country's going and, and what their foreign policy is and things like that doesn't change. That's always going to be there. And that's always, always going to be, be consistent. Yeah. And uh, oh, I, I would I would agree. And that's uh, um, I've, the first election I voted in as an 18 year old was a 2004 election. Mm -hmm. And I, I truly believe that John Kerry was some kind of good alternative to Bush. This is before I knew that they were both skull and bones. They they were both uh, cousins to some to some distant extent. And you know, you didn't have uh, anybody in the media really questioning that. And mm. like you were talking about Donahue, um, another, you know, voice in the media was a small paper, I think maybe even based around here, called Night Ritter. Mm. And I believe they were reporting accurate stuff mm -hmm. about the lack of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, yeah. um, about, you know, warning against marching into war. Maybe if uh, the country had a voice in the media that was actually telling the truth, we wouldn't have all these dead troops and dead uh, Iraqis and, and all this destruction in the Middle East and what we're seeing now with ISIS and everything that's going well, on. You know, you go back to uh, the summer, a few summers ago, uh, I think we were doing Buzzsaw at the time. Uh, you go back a few to when we first started, you know, when the when the kind of war hawks, uh, you know, hence the title of the show. Watching the hawks, yeah, right? Uh, um, chicken yeah. hawks, war, war hawks, hawks, right? Yeah, yeah the first all episode the I kind of laid it out. Calls them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but when you look at, like, the Warhawks were pushing hard for us to in invade Syria, oh, you know, yeah. and get involved in Syria conflict before ISIS was ever there. And I think you saw the public sentiment change. At first, it was that kind of, you know, we're going to spoon feed you what we want to feed you and get you riled up, and then you're going to automatically wave the flag and follow us. But then you saw alternative media and a lot of good journalists coming forward saying this is BS. Yeah, and yeah that, it was a different climate, wasn't there? That move where they couldn't rally the people to go into Syria and, and so it shows you that whether it's alternative media or, or overseas media or hopefully mainstream media here at some point you'll see that push like people if they're getting the good information if they're learning the good facts they'll push away from what they don't want to do what's ultimately not going to be good for the country there's no reason we need to be in Syria what the hell does that have to do with us you know in that time you know, in that, in that summer, uh, you know, and you saw that. And I think there's, that's a good sign that, that, you know, eventually, you know, enough people get some good information, can make informed decisions themselves, decisions themselves, then they can have a voice and actually start moving the country in, 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 in better directions. You know, I mean, again, I don't try to pretend that I am trying to speak for millions of people. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I, it would be boring if everyone thought like me. I don't want to try to change people's yeah. minds. And or, Sean think like, or Sean Stone. Or Sean Stone or Talbot. Yeah, you know, we don't want everyone to think like us. We just want to present arguments to people. We want to present, here's another way to look at this. You can take whatever you want from it. You know, that's the beauty of doing this show, watching the Hawks, is you can take, you can listen to the three of us and say we're all nuts. You can listen to us and say, well, Tabitha had a great point right there. Oh, wow, and then the next story, Ty had a great point right there. I never thought about that. And then inform yourself. Like, I'm not asking people to follow us. I'm not an activist. I'm not sitting here trying to tell people how to think. I just want people to think. You know, I yeah. want people to start right. thinking. Think for themselves. Exactly. Like and the Beatles song, Think for Yourself. Exactly. You, you know, know, George Harrison said yes. it almost 50 years ago. And it rings true to today. Yeah. Uh, going back before... Um, maybe some of your political work. You were involved with uh, Sean Penn, I understand. Mm -hmm. You uh, worked with him on several movies. Uh, I think Mystic River, yeah. uh, The Pledge, that, that uh, Jack Nicholson and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Mickey Rourke, among others. Well, yeah. How did you get hooked up with Sean Penn? I mean, what was that? Uh, uh, first, I gotta say, Sean's an incredible human being and, and one of the most um, honest and loyal people I think I've ever met in my life. I mean, he, he truly whether he was going to be an actor or not, he would have been the same person, you know, uh, and, and that's someone who, who has one of the biggest hearts I've ever, ever come across. Um, I met Sean right after my father won the election in 98. I was about 18, 19, and I'd grown up wanting to be a filmmaker. That was my passion. And when uh, my dad won at the time through pure luck, uh, good, good, goodness of whatever forces we believe change, you know, move things. Only like three hundred grand, from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's well, unheard of. I mean, yeah. that is that's that's it, really it's incredible what what he was able to do there. And and but so he won the election. I'm about eighteen, nineteen years old, passionate, wanted to be a filmmaker. I have been since I was a little seven year old storyteller, you know, 
making movies in the backyard. Um, and so he, he himself, Sean and Jack Nicholson came to Minnesota. I can't remember exactly the, the, around the time. Uh, 2000? Pretty close to that. 99, Yeah, 2000? somewhere in there. I think yeah. it came out I, I, I want to say like 99. Yeah. yeah. Um, they came to Minnesota to scout locations, and at the time, Jesse had just won, and it was kind of like everyone was like, who's this, this guy? Who, Where the hell did this guy come from? Yeah, yeah, every, the whole country was talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so they wanted to meet him, and so they came to the governor's mansion and had dinner, and I, like I said, I was 19-year-old, loved movies, and... I was, I, you know, when I got the phone call, I think I was working at the mall at the time, and I got the phone call and was like, hey, guess, guess who's coming to dinner? Uh, and I was like, oh, my God. So, you know, left work early and, you know, talked my boss into it, left work early, jumped in the car, you know, got there and had this great, great dinner uh, with these two you know, amazing human beings and, and legends, uh, you know, in, in oh, acting. Yeah. You weren't filmmaking. thinking Jack Torrance and Spicoli <laughs> right, here you know. before you. Yeah. Jack you know, Nicholson and Sean Penn. Jack Nicholson 19 and Sean years Penn. Old. Yeah, 19 years That's old. Awesome, and man. Uh, during the course of the evening, we're all talking and, and you know, Sean and, you know, figure I told him what I what my passion was <clears> to be a director. That's what my thing was. And, and, uh, and so throughout the evening, at some point in the evening, I said, well, look, if you make this movie, I'd love to come and watch for like a week or something and just to watch you guys do your thing. And, and, and he was like, yeah, yeah. And he gave me his contact info and was like, you know, when it comes closer, give me a call, you know, make sure you get set up. And so I think about a year later after that, uh, they, they decided to move the film uh, and base it, I think, in like Colorado or something or Denver, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, change the setting to that, which they ended up shooting in Canada. Uh, oh, okay. Up by the, in, up, uh, like outside of BC in Vancouver, up but, in the, yeah, they do film a lot of movies up there. Yeah, at the time that was like the hub of filming movies because you get this exchange yes, rate uh, and all that. Tax incentives, maybe. And um, so I called Sean and I said, "Hey, what would be a good time for me to come up?" And uh, left him a message, and he called me back like a day later and said, uh, "Rather than come up for a week, why don't you come up and be my assistant?" Wow, no and, kidding. Yeah, and I of course said yes. Hung up the phone. Had no idea what an assistant did. Uh, I just said yes to the job because you don't say no to that job. And um, so I, you know, packed up my things, drove up to Vancouver and, and worked on the pledge with him and Jack for, for you know, that, uh, for, I think we shot that movie for like three, four months, if I'm not mistaken. It was, it was kind of like the end of wow. winter into spring. Um, yeah. And uh, it was a great film to work on, amazing experience for me. You know, I've been very lucky in my life and, and, and you know, I've worked hard for things, but ultimately I've had a lot of luck. I've had a lot of like really good fortune. And I always kind of think that like, you know, the best way to kind of approach life is to prepare yourself to recognize a lucky moment. And you know, seize on it. Yeah. It, 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 like you have to be disciplined and, you know, uh, educate yourself and do all these things and, and be ready because you'll never know because life is lucky moments. It's not you, the, the old adage, you know, work hard and you'll achieve. It, it's half true. You have to work hard, but you have to be able to recognize the moment. And and now and then in life, there's these moments that like, oh, this is one of those moments, you know. And and that was one of those moments for me where I, you know, weird circumstances, events brought me to that moment, and I I, I got to do this. All right, getting back to the interview. Uh, um, so Sean Penn, right? Okay. Oh yeah, we're we're talking uh, we're gonna talk we're talking about the movie The Pledge that Sean Penn directed and I believe wrote the screenplay. Yeah, I don't know. If, or, I, I know he rewrote the screenplay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I can't. I think there was originally somebody who wrote because it was based on like a story, of, like a, a book. I think somebody wrote the screenplay. Okay. Before. I can't remember. Kind of that. a dark movie. I mean, it kind of ends on a, a note where maybe the killer's still out there. That's that's how I interpret it, anyways. Yeah. And I know people are probably interested in hearing a Jack Nicholson story. I myself am a huge Mickey Rourke fan, so if you have a Mickey Rourke story that you'd be willing to share with us, or, uh, or, I can say this about or something Mickey. about Mickey that you... Yeah, I, um, Mickey Rourke, he is one of the more interesting people I've met in my life, and, and I'm going to say people immediately look at Mickey and think of this you know, real tough, tough guy, and he is, he's a very tough guy. Um, but I remember being in LA and we'd worked together on, on, uh, on, on the pledge and I'm just an assistant. So I don't even want to say work together. I watched him work. Um, well, and, you know, everybody you know, who's involved in the film is, is, is a crucial essentially piece of the working together. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, uh, uh, and I remember seeing Mickey at a restaurant in LA and, and, you know, that kind of happens and it's like, Oh, Mickey, you know, remember Tyrell and he's like, Hey Tyrell. And you know, that kind of back and forth happens and you know, how you doing and all that. And he, I remember he had come up to me, which I found a little odd. I was like, oh, Mickey. And, and he's like, uh, he asked me, he was like, your dad, you know, uh, he just wrote a book. It was during one of the times one of the books came out. I said, yeah. And he's like, 
Can I get, um, can I send you a copy of the book to get autographed? And I was like, Mickey Rourke's asking me for my dad's autograph. No, That's no a kidding. That's odd. Like, you know, like, wow, and, so and he was kind of fanboying a little bit. Actually, what it was, was, is he's like, because uh, him and my dad had met each other years before. He was like, my, I think he even said, my grandmother read his book and loved it and would really like his autograph. No kidding. Yeah, and so Mickey was the sweetest person. He asked in the most polite, he was so polite and was so sweet. Like, he was almost, not embarrassed to ask, but just was like a, a fan, you know. And it was just a very sweet moment where Mickey was just like, my grandmother, who I love dearly, would really love an autograph from your dad for her book. Oh, you know, that's and, awesome. And it was just so sweet. Mickey, Mickey is, a, is a wonderful human being. I mean, I, in all of my experiences with Mickey, he is, is, a, is a fascinating, wonderful person. Um, you know, and, and, and yeah, and that story will always kind of stick out. That, that's awesome. He's just, you know, big Mickey. And, oh, you know, he's, he's a bad boy. Presence and, he's a bad boy. And, and he's that. asking to do something because he loves his grandma, which I thought yeah. was just beautiful. You the know, love of animals is very touching yes. as well. He's yeah. a very big dog guy. And, mm -hmm. and um, what's your, besides the plus, what's your favorite Mickey Rourke film? Ooh, favorite Mickey Rourke film. Wow, man. Um, favorite Mickey Rourke film. That's a good question. Well, you think uh, on that. Angel Mine Heart is Angel Heart. Yeah. Yeah, Angel Heart is up there. Yeah. I actually thought it, it's a small part, but I actually really liked the way he played the character in The Rainmaker. Uh, oh, yeah, that was one of the Francis smaller roles Coppola in the 90s. That. That yeah, he, he was very good in that. Um, mm. Yeah, well, I mean, before his comeback, you know, he he, had and, a, he and, was in the wilderness there heat. for a while. You know, his, one oh, of his yeah. first films, Body With Heat. William Hurt. Yeah, he was, yeah. you know, Mickey was one of those guys that's just, you can watch him, you know, read the New York Times and you're fascinated. We're back to Jackman Radio, and that was the first part of a two-part interview with Tyrell Ventura that I had the privilege of conducting down in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago. Blast. Great time. Sounds like a cool dude. Tyrell is just a righteous, down-to-earth, awesome guy. And, you know, I'd never met him before in person. We've been corresponding through email, and he showed up, you know, not knowing me, not knowing, you know... Obviously. Yeah, when he, we had this and he, he came out and uh, you know hung out for a couple hours. We did the interview and then he hung out for another hour and we chatted and had a great time. And he's just an awesome guy. And I hope that uh, you know we can meet him again and you know maybe do some work with him down the road. Absolutely, no, that's awesome, Mike. I'm uh, I was wish I could have been down there. That was uh, that sounded like a cool experience and um, it's a great experience. It's just refreshing to meet somebody who's I would say relatively in the same age bracket. He's born in what, 79? Yeah, he was born in the late 70s. We're born in 86. Yeah. yeah, he's like five, you know. A few years older than us. Not that far off. Yeah, we're millennials. We right, Oswald? Pretty, pretty are, much. are we millennials? Even uh, though we hate labels? Yeah, I think we are. I think technically we were millennials. Yeah, he was born in the late 70s. I mean, he's yeah. 35, we're 28. You know, we touched upon that in the interview. And, right. Um, you know, just really laid back. Just a, a cool guy, you know. A lot of interesting stuff to say and a really interesting resume. Did and you fly down? I did. I, I, uh, Malaysian Air? Yeah. It was not Malaysian Did anything German, interesting German happen wings? on the flight? Yeah. I found out Anyone that... Anyone shit themselves? Yeah. <laughs> No, nothing like that. But I did find out that you can actually take uh, bottles of liquor from the airport. At the airport, they have the New Hampshire liquor store where you can purchase bottles of liquor and bring it onto the flight. Big bottles, not just nips? Big bottles, yeah. I didn't even mm. know this. Can until... you drink it on the flight? Yeah, I doubt it. Oh. You probably only have what they serve you, you know? Right. I mean, you, you might be able no, to sneak you put something. It into a Dude, cup? B BYOB on a flight would just be a yeah. fucking, fucking heavenly... You know, I think you put it well, in the cup mean, and bring it down there. Either that, <laughs> I, or it would be a fucking nightmare. Oh well, yeah. I mean, the flight from yeah, Manchester, New Hampshire to Washington D.C. was probably like an hour fifteen. Right. The flight back from Reagan to Manchester was like a, an hour. Now you said the flight back, you hit some turbulence, and it was in the back of your mind. There was definitely some turbulence. You were like, <laughs> I was like, God, is this thing gonna go down? You know, am I gonna be able to get this interview back to New Hampshire? You know. Oh God. So it, you know, it didn't go down. Everything worked out, and it was a great trip. Uh, I fucking great. hate flying. 
Yeah, Eric has. A tough I'm the time. Jackman brother who uh, is deathly afraid. I white knuckle it on takeoff and landing. Really? Like I'm like, dude, another another plane is gonna fuck up and come hit us. At oh, and during too, an he's, like, he's like, you you realize we're at thirty thousand feet cruising altitude. And the last time Mike and I flew together, we were coming back from Wash. Well, yeah, we went to Washington D.C. last year, the end of September for late a wedding, August, early September for, for a, a wedding. friend's wedding, a really lovely Greek Orthodox wedding down there. And um, Mike knows that I don't I don't do very well flying, and he instructed the um, flight attendant to call, uh, bring me a beer. He comes up and he goes, "Your um, your brother back there, he got you a beer. You're Eric, right?" I was like, "Yeah, your brother got you a beer." <laughs> so I just pointed. I said, "Bring a beer to that guy who looks like me." Yeah, what does he look like? He's the guy grabbing his seat, you know, and all <clears throat> fucking looks like he's gonna pass out. Terror. Yeah, who's in terror. So, yeah. you know, the way I, I view know. flying, I mean... It's stupid. It's illogical because I'll get in my car tomorrow and drive nine miles to my job. I could get killed a lot easier than flying on a plane. Right, Aaron? Yeah, that's what they say. I'm yeah. more afraid of being in cars. I mean, I, I was in a nasty car accident uh, just over two years ago, you know, and, and uh, luckily the only thing I, I damaged was my arm, which is a, you know, a permanent thing, but... I'm more afraid to be in cars than I am in a plane. Like if a plane, I'm in a plane, I accept it. You know, things gonna. Yeah, but the whole thing is like you, you know, you're in a car every day, so you just get well, used to it. Well, when you're driving, you feel like you're in control. It's yeah, other yeah. people. It's other. No, yeah, people. Exact, oh, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Fucking dumbass. Like, you, know, you, you know, texting or you know, looking you could at have the most, porn on his iPhone. You could have the most dangerous job in the world, but you do it enough times, you just don't even fucking think about. It. You know, there's a complacency yeah. that yeah. comes. There's a hubris. Yeah, that's true. And driving is so dangerous, and people just don't even think about like those guys. You ever see? You're operating a big machine. The guys climbing like the telephone like the giant or fucking, window washers um, like and on shit the, on, on the, the world yeah. trade center yeah like the, the the power the guys that work yeah. on like the power lines yeah, they're, they're from like, like helicopters fucking, you know yeah. like, they don't even fucking care they've done it a million times and they're just like yeah, hey they're probably underpaid of course they are <laughs> you know that cocksucker in wall street you know will make a you know get a three million dollar bonus and they just sat on their ass in some boardroom and blew gas yeah. so, well the guy washing the window risks his life in that 60 story tower so it was another successful trip down to Washington, D.C. I had a great time, you know, got to meet Tyrell Ventura and hang out with him and uh, see some lifelong friends and some family, and, you know, now we're back in New Hampshire. So Hell yeah, it dude. It was good. That's awesome. I'll probably be going down there soon to visit and be booking a flight and be really worried about it for a while and then do it and I'll be okay. Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, they came to a verdict, guilty on all 30 charges. Oh. Massachusetts might go with the death penalty federal, on this Well, there's one, federal huh? charges, and federal can carry the death penalty. So their sentencing should come soon, but he's guilty. there was 30 charges. He's guilty on all 30. And, you know, basically the defense's play was trying to convince the jury that it was his older brother who brainwashed him into doing it, that, uh, you know, Jokar Zernayev, he's 21 years old. He's just, you know, kind of an unassuming guy who just followed his brother around like a little puppy dog and fell under his spell and was brainwashed by him and, and did this for his brother. I mean, Where? dude, he could, he could have blown the whistle on it and said, my, my brother wants to bomb the marathon. I, you know, could have fucking called it in and stopped it from happening, you know? He's, yeah. he's he, obviously he's guilty of it. Well, they have a defense attorney who uh, represented Ted Kaczynski and convinced the jury that he was mentally insane and he was spared the death penalty, you know, due to that, and he never forgave her for that. And it was the same, it's the same woman who's working with uh, uh, the defense on this case. Where did they have the trial? In Boston, I believe it was really? in Boston. Really? Yeah. No, it was. It was. Why in would they do that? Like, why would you? Well, that was another thing. Be beginning of it, because that was a battle between federal and state. They were yeah, saying, okay. "How the fuck is this kid going to get a fair trial in Boston?" Because everyone's Boston strong, you know. Um, we need to have it somewhere else. But I don't know, man. You know, I'm against the death penalty. I don't. I don't really think um, we should put the kid to death. I think he should rot in a cell for the rest of his natural life. I mean, what do you think, Aaron? Are you, are you in favor of the death penalty? Are you against it? I go I mean, back what, and what do you forth think? on that one. Because you know every day, man, that, that innocent people get put to death in our penal yeah, system in the United yeah. States. Yeah, I, I really and, do go back and forth. And that sucks. Forth. That fucking sucks because you wouldn't want to be that guy. Right. You know? And, and as horrible as it is what these fucking assholes did at the Boston Marathon, um, you know... There was a trial, and evidence was brought forward, and he was proven guilty. And then, you know, say what you will about uh, how it was done, but, you know, uh, I'm against the death penalty, man. I, I don't believe in it. 
Well, if it kills even one innocent person, I mean, why would yeah, you have it? I yeah, mean, I get that whole you know, side and, and of it. Then there's obviously there's arguments about uh, the appeal process. It's 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 when the someone appeals, someone brings up like a crime that's so ridiculously heinous, you know, so lurid. Well, there's that, a whole emotional kind of, thing about about the death penalty, and you, everyone, you know, just collectively, everyone just wants them to not be here anymore. Like that's what it comes down to. Like, but. Yeah, I don't but, know. It's but a weird I'm like conundrum. seeing it on Twitter, man. People just like being fucking savages, calling for the dude's head like it's fucking Game of Thrones <laughs> yeah. or something. Well, they do. You know? That's what Twitter's all about. Well, no, Twitter, not a I, lot of positivity on Twitter. No, well, not a lot of positivity <laughs> in America is right. what I'm saying. You know, well, yeah. I don't know, man. It's just I don't know. It's just off-putting when when otherwise rational people or, or normal people are saying, you know, fucking hang this guy. Kill him, string him up. You know, how does it make you any better than the fucking act that he and his brother committed? Well, it's know? also like like uh, people can't understand things like that. Like I, I know from like I have very I couldn't comprehend like doing something like that. You know, like know. I've never even been in a fist fight. I couldn't comprehend right. like murdering well, someone because so, we have a fucking brain. I think in our the head. anger just comes out. The anger just comes out of like that not being able to understand like you just can't comprehend it so you just you have to react some way you know so you might as well just do it with anger because that's the quickest fucking easiest well, it's way a natural to do it. reaction for so many people you know and i don't know it's it's also like a human reaction though too like i mean the the fact that everyone's reacting like that like the same way is kind of I don't know. It's it's a there's it's telling. I think. And you know what? I'm Mike and I are. We we went to the Boston Marathon um, for years in high school. Our old man would take us down there. What we would do is we'd start the day early. We'd leave New Hampshire at three in the morning and go watch the fucking uh, Revolutionary War reactment on the Concord Green. We'd down watch Lexington, that. Yeah. Lexington, and then we would go to the Boston Marathon and get and, and literally sit right where that first bomb went off. Like right there, we would set our lunch. We would get there early, so we'd be front row for the finish line, and set it up right there. So, you know, you could say we have a not a personal connection, but I mean, for years and years we went there, and it's just a, a cool thing we enjoyed going to. Even though, if you look at Mike and I, we were the farthest thing from runners. You know, <laughs> yeah, from- I'll, I'll run if if McDonald's is closing, and I can get there in about thirty seconds. I'll run. But um, you know, the point is. Um, I don't know, man. I just don't think we're any better than our enemies if, if we continue down the savagery of, of, of being in favor of capital punishment. What do you think, Mike? Oh, it's an awful thing that happened, but this is something that happens over the Middle East pretty much every day. And with more casualties, uh, with young people being killed, I, I believe in the Boston bombing there was a young, younger you know, male child that was killed. And that, you know, obviously that's a terrible thing. And it tugs on the, the heartstrings of Americans and they, they want to call for blood and... You know, they want justice and, uh, you know, see something done about that. But, you know, this happens every single day in other parts of the world that we don't even see or talk about. And they don't have fucking Livestrong bracelets for it. They don't have fundraisers for it. They don't have a slick media campaign for it. So, you know, what about the injustice that's going on in other parts of the world? Innocent children are killed. Drone strikes in Yemen. Well, right, exactly. So there's children being killed every day from poverty, from hunger, from disease from bombings, from, you know, whatever going on. So it happened here in our country. and uh, We're not used to it. Right. So I don't know. I think, uh, I think rotting in a jail cell for the rest of his life will be uh, pretty bad Yeah, for him. That you would know? suck. I mean, horrible. he was he, 21, 22 21 years, years old? old. Right, so he's going to rot in a jail cell for the rest of his life. Fucking dumbass. So, you know. I don't know. I think that we should be asking more questions about who Uncle Ruslan is and where he comes from and what his angle is. You know, he was on the media not that long after the bombings uh, telling his nephews to turn themselves in and, you know, calling them losers. And, and he's kind of has an interesting background, so which the media never talks about. Well, we could dig into that to another show uh, with Daniel Hopsicker. That's something we want to have Daniel Hopsicker on to talk about, who's an awesome investigative journalist and researcher I mean, down do, in Florida. I mean, do you think in your heart that it was just these, just the two brothers, the older brother was a fucking asshole and he wanted to do this and he was radicalized? It wasn't some FBI plot, it wasn't an inside job, it wasn't fucking this and that, it was just these two guys. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, you, I think that's entirely possible that that's the case. I mean, yeah. because that's the thing in this country. You know, you can you go into a large crowd and you you have the possibility that some some deranged person is going to try something. I mean, 
you know, just on a, on a, a, a local microcosm level, we had the uh, fireworks in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, which is one of the most popular Northeastern fireworks displays in the, you know, that everyone knows about. And right. it was canceled after a bomb threat came in, I believe, in 2012 or 2013. Right. So they canceled it for a year or two, and then they had to move it somewhere else. And there's no way to ensure safety in an event like that. You're, you're just putting – it's in the public trust. You're going to a big event. There's tens of thousands of people there, you know. There's, there's no way to – every time you leave your door, there's no way to ensure your safety. Exactly. Well, that's the, I, I that's think the, the point that I want to – safety is a fucking illusion. I don't really think we're that safe, you know. I mean, yeah, it's the illusion of safety. It's the illusion of safety and, and, and the the peace of mind that that there's people looking out for us, and there are there are people who work day and night to ensure that we're not attacked and this and that. There's a lot of great people in government. Well, it's like I mean, when you're flying, obviously you have to go through the machines and you have to. Yeah, I, I got I was patted down and I had to go through their you know scan body scans. Um, so you want to get on a plane where everyone's been screened, but. I said to another passenger who, who said, oh, they just patted me down. I don't think they're going to call me for a second date. <laughs> and I said, well, what about when you get onto a bus? Right. What about when you go onto a Greyhound bus where there's no one dozens of people, tons and of people. huge bags. Oh, yeah. You could pack one of those bags full of manure and light that shit up. So nobody you know? pats you down when you go onto a bus? That's true. We, we all have traveled to Fung Wah and Lucky Star and oh, Gold Greyhound. And, and, of course. Uh, uh, Bolt Bus and Megabus. Exactly. When I lived in Washington, that was my preferred means of uh, traveling the corridor from D.C. to get to Boston. And uh, I'd be lying if I didn't say that was always in the back of my mind. Like, kind of looking around the bus, wondering wondering if... Uh, wondering about that. Sure. Anything you do. I know it's dark, but... There's I mean, risk and there's danger in everything we do, so... Yeah. Whatever, you know, I mean... You know. Anyways, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Um, you know, in my, I, I think they're going to fucking sentence him to death. And, you know, so, and we're yes. all going to feel better and they'll do a big ceremony at Fenway Park and it'll be great. And fucking if you're going to sentence someone to death, you might as well do it publicly. Like, either have it on television well, have it or at Fenway you know, Park. do it in, yeah, in yeah, Fenway Park. Yeah, they should have a stoning. That'd be fucking awesome. Yeah, let the people who lost their limbs throw the first fucking stones because they have their arms, you know? I don't Interesting. Know. Well, to close the show, we usually do a movie review, and uh, tonight I want to talk about, a, I believe it was an HBO series. It was a six-part HBO series that came out, and it was called The Jinx. And this was a basically a documentary doc with some reenactments and docudrama about this fellow named Robert Durst, who's part of the Durst real estate empire from New York City, which is the fifth or sixth largest real estate conglomerate in, in, in New York. They got the contract to lease out the new uh, Freedom Tower. You know, they've been around for a long time, three generations. And this guy, Robert Durst, back in the early 80s, 1982, 83, was suspected of murdering his wife. And his story that he told was kind of inconsistent, didn't have, didn't really add up. Holes. Yeah, there were holes. So his wife goes missing, you know, there's no body, there's no murder weapon. And then, you know, almost 20 years later, a friend of his uh, is killed, who may or may not know some information about the wife's disappearance. And then a couple years after that, you know, a neighbor slash semi-roommate of his is murdered and dismembered, which Robert Durst admitted to doing. In self-defense. Yeah, he so, described so, the dismemberment in his first trial. Well, I had I had to get rid of the body. I had to get this body out of my apartment. So I got a saw and cut the body up. Jesus. So Robert Durst admitted to at least one of the one of the you know deaths. And there was a movie that came out in 2010 or 2011 uh, by this fellow Andrew Jarecki, who did this documentary, The Jinx, called All Good Things. Which had Ryan Gosling. Is that the one with a car accident? I don't think there's a car accident in I it. I saw but that. Isn't he like a... Who's Ryan, Ryan Gosling supposed to portray? Robert Durst. Oh, okay. So he's highly suspected of his wife's disappearance. So so anyways, the real Robert Durst saw the movie, contacted the filmmakers and said, I'm, I, I've never given interviews to the press. I don't talk to people. I'm interested in sitting down and talking with you about this. Holy shit, really? So he contacted them. He reached out to them saying, I'm a fan of this movie and I saw it and I want to set the record straight. And Yeah, he's an idiot. In my opinion. He, <laughs> he couldn't he, have just let it be. In my opinion, he was a braggart. 
He oh, wanted, yeah. He, he wanted kinda, to take credit for what he, he did. He kind of wanted people to know. Yeah, I mean, for yeah. sure. That's why he stole a fucking sandwich. I mean, right, exactly. So this, you know, this guy, even, you know, not being the heir apparent and the one that they want to be in the face of this real estate business, still has untold millions, you know, in his coffers. So he can travel and do whatever he wants. Right, so he's calmed. Oh, he could, he's Money never been an issue. It's never been an issue. So he can travel and do whatever he wants. And, and, and so, you know, he's going back and forth to California where this woman lived that was friends with him for a number of years that, you know, we're, they're pretty sure he shot her in the back of the head because she was going to talk to the authorities uh, about what she knew, you know, in regards to the, to the original murder that took place back in the early 80s. So this, this documentary, The Jinx, is... Uh, you know, Aaron, I thought it was very interesting and, and very uh, just, you can't even believe that this guy has been walking free for nearly three decades. And the fact Over that, three decades. And the fact that he, they have him throughout the series giving interviews like, and you know, in today, like what, what amounts to like, I don't know, last year. This is a man ago, who's over 70 just, years old. You have the actual guy sitting there talking about, you know, defending himself for the first time. And it's just, and he's just like this frail guy, and you just you I, I could listen to him talk all fucking day. Oh, it's dude. fascinating. He's just a very yeah one of the most interesting men on the planet right now. So watching the six part series, Aaron, knowing what you know about him, what you would still what would you still do? Um, I would still be his roommate if he needed if he needed a roommate, and I needed a place. I'm living with my parents right now, so I mean, I would absolutely move in with Robert Durst. <laughs> Um, Aaron will still live with the guy because he's that likable. He is. He's just. Like I mean, the this footage nice of him, guy. I think. I think I could like. You know. I, I think I could clean clean him up a bit. You know. The footage of him walking up to his brother's, you know, brownstone in New York City, you know, gallivanting for the cameras and showboating, and you know, get get the footage of me in front of my brother's house. You know, his brother hired you know twenty four seven security detail to protect him because he thought he was going to come and try and shoot him. Yeah. I don't think it's unfounded. Yeah, well, they they, they kind of made the point in the show that like he he wasn't a guy that would he he didn't seem like the kind of guy that would kill for the pleasure of killing like necessity. He, yeah, he kind of did it when he had to, which um, I don't know, kind of made like he had a lot of sympathy points just just listening to him talk and the story he's kind of just like oh his the, childhood yeah the and black sheep of the family and watched um, his mother die yeah watched his mother commit suicide um just fantastic doc hbo just every documentary on hbo is just fucking fantastic they killed they crushed it they killed it on this yeah, one so yeah. i highly recommend anyone who likes the true excuse me the true crime stuff documentaries yeah, it's like it's uh, like a forensic file episode, but it's six hours long, and you know they're swearing, and it's oh, HBO. Did you watch the Scientology documentary? No, I've heard great no. Things. I'm I'm trying to we're it's trying to organize a, yeah, yeah, we're trying to organize a group viewing, and we can't get everyone together, so it's just kind of. But I'm dying to fucking see it, dude. Do you have it? Wait, no, I don't that. have it. Tim, I'm gonna go to Tim Stone's house and watch it because he had HBO. Oh, Tim Stone's got to count me in on that. I'm there. Yeah. So, anyways, guys, the Jinx. I highly recommend anyone who's interested in something a little bit different a little beyond the pale but also you can sympathize with the monster because monsters are not born in my opinion they're made and robert durst from many years of various tragedies and travesties and the circumstances in his life became a monster no mike was hot and it caught him well, yeah, no, basically, don't, don't give away the punchline here. That's, that's the, that's, I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, oh, sorry. Well, that's the no, whole, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to give. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I haven't I, seen it, and I, 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 I just want, yeah, I want people like, to watch this yeah, yeah, documentary. Yeah, want people to listen I, I, to your show. I, I, again. I need to watch it. I haven't. <laughs> Absolutely, you need to watch. I haven't it. seen yeah. it. And, yet. So, yeah, that's the, and, literally and, the very last scene. And he has been arrested again, in connection to. Uh, what's her name? Susan Berman? Yeah, Susan Berman. That and was the murder that happened in the last 15 years. Now they're saying that there's this girl in Vermont, college student in Vermont that went missing. And she was at his shop, all, which yeah. was called All yeah. Good Things. Connected, Mike? Absolutely. Maybe. I, don't I mean, know. I, I think really the guy know. killed at least three people. Yeah. I'm going to say that based on what I've read, based what on saw, what I saw. What you heard him say. He at least killed these three people and, that, and that are psych. featured in the documentary. It's kind of psych. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's something. So Jesus. 
So we're, we, uh, we've talked about Robert Durst, and we're going to end the show with, uh, I believe it's the, it's the theme to the Jinx, it's, which is a very nightmarish track mm, by song. a band called the Eels. Just Eels. 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 And what's yep. the name of the track? Um, the track is called, um, fuck, what is it called? Fresh Blood. Fresh so the Blood. track is called Fresh Blood. We've done the first half of the Tyrell Ventura interview. Next episode, we will do the second half. We will talk about him and his father tracking down Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, wife. We will talk about oh. more about what he's doing with his show and what future guests he wants to have. That's going to come at you at the next episode of Jackman Radio. So we hope you've enjoyed tonight's interview with Tyrell Ventura and what we've had to talk about. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, folks. <laughs>